With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. .NET Rocks episode 971 with guest Brian Noyes. Recorded Monday, April 7th, 2014. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Don and Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Uh, hey, Brian Noyes is here, our old friend. We'll get to him in a minute. But in yep. the meantime, my good friend in Canada, how are you, sir? I am well. Good. It's raining here in Vancouver, which is always good. There's a rumor there's a Mark Miller around somewhere, so my day might get weird. So uh, I was in the studio last night, just came in to visit. There was a band rehearsing in here, and uh, the steel guitar player came up to me afterwards and said, Carl, I'm really sorry. I, And she had this abashed look on her face. I broke one of the microphone clips. You know, they're called yokes, yeah. things that hold the microphone on the stand. And she goes, but the good news is now you got another chip clip. You know? It's <laughs> <laughs> so I go, good hey, news. Hey, Kelly, <laughs> take this home. Yes. Put it on a plastic bag. <laughs> and a chip clip. Because, wow, industrial strength. There you go. Yeah. Oh, so it's funny. all about repurposing. Hey, let's roll that stupid music one more time. All right, buddy, what do you got? All right, so I went looking for some cool WPF stuff, uh, and I found a, a... Is there such a thing? Yeah. I don't know how cool WPF actually Well, you is. know, I've, it's just something that I haven't talked about on the show yet, but I've used it. It's the Window Chrome class. And huh. s- so this basically lets you take off the rounded corners and the the all the chrome, you know, the minimize, maximize button and all that stuff, and lets you do some cool effects with you know, a, a standard WPF window. And it nice. uses the shell, the Windows shell library. But it kind of wraps it up nice, and it's been in there since 2010. It's been in there since .NET 4. Okay. But I just thought, and I also found a nice code project. Uh, project. Uh, uh, so if you go to tinyurl.com slash windowchrome, you can grab that project. And there's even a binary demo that you can download in, it just goes through all the different ways that you can make your form look like, uh, you know, it's got a little style. Interesting. Yeah. Because Chrome's not hip anymore, right? No, it's not hip. But, you know, if you're going to do a WPF app, it better look a little different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you got to give it some style. Don't just, don't try and impersonate wind forms. Yeah, exactly. You know, make it show what it is. But okay, I'm with you. 
Throw in the links for the show there, you know, this this Code Project uh, library in the class. Did you actually do a framework class in Better Know Framework? Yeah. Is that what just happened there? Exactly. Wow, I'm I'm excited. That's cool. Yep. Tinyurl.com slash window chrome takes you to that Code Project class. Awesome. Yep. There you go. Know it, learn it, love it. Hey, who's talking to us, my friend? Uh, I grabbed a comment off of show 966, and that's the one we just did recently on Structured Logging with Nicholas Blumhart. Awesome show. Indeed. And great comments, too. I mean, you're probably going to read one of them, but there were several that that had this sentiment. Yeah, I bet I'll probably end up reading them all over time. And this comment comes from Daniel Sabo, who says, Hi, gents. I'm a career.net enterprise developer, and in every shop I've been in has written its log info into SQL Server for easy querying later. You insinuated that this was a poor practice during the show, but you didn't dive into exactly why it shouldn't be done this way. I Googled for concrete reasoning against using SQL Server, but I couldn't come up with anything solid. Would it be possible for you to discuss this bad practice in a little more detail? And I don't know that we actually went down the path of saying bad practice. You know, he just didn't uh, like was, it. There was a couple of things we did talk about. I mean, it's, SQL Server is about querying. More importantly, it's about relating data together. We were just talking about how the whole NoSQL movement and so forth grew up around this idea that relational databases aren't for everything. Yeah. And you can make the statement that log data is part of that because it's purely a log. It's just a string of data going straight down. You don't combine it with anything. You don't really do any of the cool stuff that SQL Server can necessarily do. But even in uh, Serilog, in Nick's product, mm-hmm. there is a sync for SQL Server. So, you know, you're a, it's supported. It's not a big deal. You can do it that way. It's just sort of a recognition of, is this the best use of your SQL Server, or is there a better way to handle the data? Yeah. Uh, and Daniel goes on to say, uh, I've been listening to your show for a few months now, and I love that you bring a wealth of real-world experience to the conversation instead of talking points geared to selling books or convention tickets. Thanks for what you do. I have a three and a half hour commute each way from Sacramento to San Francisco every day. Yeah. Wow. But your show makes the train ride educational and enjoyable at the same time. I truly appreciate it. Dude, three and a half hours? Yeah. We're not making enough content for Daniel. <laughs> not for Daniel. That's anyway. a lot of content. <laughs> Holy man. I could recommend some other good podcasts for him. Yep, there's yeah. a few. Yeah. But that's amazing. That's a time. You know what? Remote work. Oh, man. Yeah. It's such a lot of commuting. Yep. Anyway, Daniel, thanks so much for your comment. And I, I, I didn't mean to put you off SQL Server entirely just to think in terms of using relational data models for relating data, not just, you know, logs, not just straight streams. But, you know, if you have a license for SQL Server, and lots of us do, it is a place to put data that is backed up, that is reliable. You know, there's lots of strengths there. You just got to be sure you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And that brings us to Brian. Brian Noyes is CTO for Salliance, a Microsoft Regional Director and MVP, and Pluralsight author. Brian specializes in smart client technologies with XAML and HTML5 JavaScript, as well as the services to back them with ASP.NET, Web API, WCF, and Microsoft Azure services. Welcome back, Brian. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. It's been a little over a year and uh, just over 10 years since the first time. I'm feeling freaking old. Holy man. Holy man, indeed. And 
Speaking of old and feeling old, and you know, I brought up that WPF uh, Chrome thing from a couple of years ago. And I think this is a good time to have this conversation about old technologies. Um, I, you know, we've been talking to our, our vendors. You know, we recently went through um, some uh, advertiser changes and talking to new vendors like DevExpress and talking to old vendors like Telerik. We were just shocked at the amount of Windows Forms Controls suites that they sell. And oh, yeah. The, the market for Windows Forms Controls and tools is huge, huge, right. huge, right. huge, huge. And we we didn't know that. I mean, Richard and I were just astounded. And so, you know, here we are, you know, a show like .NET Rocks. How many listeners have we been putting off because we haven't been talking about Windows Forms? Now, granted, Windows Forms hasn't innovated, you know, in a long, it's long changed time. Much in a while. It hasn't changed in a long time. But I wonder, you know... Um, are uh, you know the there how many developers out there are doing windows forms in wpf as well is w, so so you know i'm looking in the show notes here is wpf dead you know people are asking that question and they're asking they asked the question about windows forms years ago and came to the conclusion yes and yet <laughs> we have this huge ecosystem of windows forms controls this huge market which tells me no yeah, well, unlike living beings, dead is kind of a spectrum when it comes to software technology, you know, and WPF in particular has definitely gone through a cycle where it's, you know, much like the Monty Python, I'm not dead yet kind of thing. Yeah, um, I, I had a post on that. I think it was probably two or three years ago now when everyone was proclaiming WPF was dead because the new wave was Silverlight. And we all know where that took us. Yeah. Um, and the fact is WPF is you know, more alive now than it was then in that, you know, if you go by the, you know, one meter is where is Microsoft putting resources? Yeah. And, you know, certainly back in that era, they were shifting all of their resources from WPF to Silverlight. But most of those or pretty much all of those Silverlight resources have now moved on to Windows 8. But there is actually still an active WPF development team, and they are looking into new features to put into whatever the next release of the .NET framework will be. So, you know, in terms of resources being applied to the technology by Microsoft, it's very much alive. And certainly in terms of, you know, customers out there needing that technology to build their applications, you know, once now that we're finally through this whole phase of what do we do? Do we do Silverlight? It's WPF dead. We got to get off Windows Forms. Uh, you know, I've still got VB6 customers coming to me saying, yeah, we uh, never got around to migrating and we think we should probably get to it one of these days. Well, and and I, I'm also thinking that there's so much VB6 code. There's more VB6 code running out there than any of us really know. Yeah, I, I'm getting that feeling, you know, because of the number of migration projects. We'll be talking to Francesco Belena, who's doing uh, he's like overwhelmed with VB migration projects. Right. I know he has a great tool for that. Yeah, he does. And uh, and, the, and the demand for that is up, you know, now XP is end of life and all of that. Um, but so so in having this realization, you know, Richard and I have had these discussions that we we want to while we don't really talk about innovations in Windows Forms on the show, and just to get back to the show for a minute, and we will get back to your topic, 
we we have pledged to at least acknowledge the existence of windows forms developers you know uh we're sorry we ignored you for so long you do matter to us and uh yeah and you know let's face it it's a great technology that works and it works well and there's a lot of code obviously still running out there and a lot of people still developing for it Exactly. So and I so I echo your sentiments about WPF. Um, there and obviously there are technologies that demand WPF that require WPF. Well, I think even more so today because you know the the challenge that most customers I've been working with are in at least you know current snapshot in time, and this will probably go away in a you know two to three years time is that they are either unable to, you know, even consider doing Windows 8, Windows Store applications because they simply don't have Windows 8 in the environment, you know, in right. the enterprise. Yeah. Uh, or they're unwilling because the idea of reimagining their, you know, traditional desktop applications with 400 pop-up screens into a navigation-based, you know, Windows Store application is just too much for them to bite off on at this point. Well, and Richard knows that on the IT side, Richard, you, these companies have invested millions of dollars in infrastructure, in in software, in Microsoft software to manage the deployment and and uh, desktop environments of all of these computers, right? Well, and build. They finally made some announcements that builds about dealing with the deployment problem for windows 8 metro apps because they because right. it was horrible right but i think we're still trying to get our head around exactly what it is and i know we'll do some shows on this real soon now but the, the companies i've been working with have been simply building wpf apps that work both in win 7 and win 8 and maybe they're touch oriented maybe they're not that's not even the point it works everywhere and it works with the existing deployment infrastructure and i don't want to run away from vb6 just yet either yeah. because my customers are that still have VB6 apps. You know, the VB runtime deployed with Win8. It's still there. Yeah. You know, your app just runs. It looks a little dated, just a bit, but it still just runs. Well, and I think what a lot of those customers are, you know, running into even more so is certainly there's some fear that at some point it will stop running. But I think they're really, you know, the the bigger cost to them is that they're dealing with 10 plus years of legacy code development, you know, yeah. button click handlers with 100,000 lines of code behind them, not factored out into, you know, any kind of decent separation patterns. And that has a, you know, significant maintenance cost over time. Well, I think I think it's got to be tough to find developers now for VB6. And it's even tougher to have a development environment for VB6. Yeah. And I can also see the guys who are like, look, why why are you messing with my VB6 thing? It, it works. It's making money. If you mess with it, I will. it will stop working, and then I'll have to rewrite it. Don't. It's so easy for Microsoft just to include that DLL with Windows. Why would they ever stop? That would totally destabilize my business. Right? Yeah, but, you know, the last version of VB shipped back in 98. Virtualization didn't really exist yet. So how do you maintain a visual basic development environment? Is it on a creaky 10-year-old plus machine? Is that scary as hell? What if you don't have to maintain it? I mean, if these apps are still running, maybe they just run. Yeah, it, the, the issue here is stuff like tax rates change. Yeah. Right? Like, you, you code sometimes needs to be maintained. Need and, to be rebuilt, that's, yeah. You know, what's the definition of a legacy app? One you're not willing to recompile. Yeah, I got it. Right? <laughs> you got it, man. Holy yeah. crap. Yeah. Nailed it. So. <laughs> Definitely. 
Oh, boy. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, in terms of WPF being dead, I think, you know, even more than ever, it's very much alive in that there's just, at least, like I said, for a few years, there's going to be, you know, people who need to build new stuff, and their users are used to desktop. That comes up a lot with customers as well. They say, you know, that that Windows 8 stuff looks kind of cool, but my users aren't used to it yet. They are used to a desktop, so that's what we're going to give them. That's the way they think about things. Exactly. You know, the other piece of this that, that I've also talked to my customers about is WPF depends on XAML, and XAML is now part of the operating system. Mm. Right. And that means that, it's just, you know, the fact that VB still in the runtime gives you a pretty good indication that XAML is going to be in the runtime for a long time. Right. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. And and so, you know, what do you what do you make of Rocky Laka's sort of uh, idea that spas and you know JavaScript and HTML five is going to take over in the business uh, world for for business apps? Is well, it happening? I'm, I'm kind of all in from one perspective. So I've got a I, I continue to have a you know multiple technical personality disorder, and <laughs> that I'm always pursuing multi, You know, I'm not just a specialist in one thing, and and so I you know still I'm all in on on XAML on one side of things, but I'm also all in on the spas, and and I just uh, you know I've done some consulting recently with a customer who was basically forced by their customers. Uh, to rewrite their desktop WPF application as a spa, really, because they they had to basically bid against competitors and their customers. You know, they had major, uh, big organization type customers that were coming to them and saying, "Don't give us a desktop app. Give us a a browser based app that we can run on any platform." And it's all about deployment because they yeah, really exactly. want to run on a tablet. They want to run on an iPad. They want to run on a yeah. Exactly. They want to be able to leverage, you know, the responsive design features and, like you say, target multiple form factors with a single deployment. And by the way, I went back through your history of .NET Rocks episode, and this would be the 11th episode, by the way. Nice. I think you get a free sub. Um, (laughs) And the very first show, show 46, what are you talking about? Click once. You're talking about dealing with deployment. Yep, exactly. Yep. And that's still out there and still being used. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's I'm, I have a tough time seeing the deployment justification as real anymore. We've gotten way better at deployment. Yeah, we have. Although there, I had a uh, funny conversation to build. I was talking to some of the the Windows uh, operating system team guys that uh, gave the keynote talks, and I managed to get them to, or I, I didn't. Someone I was uh, that was in the conversation got them to uh, basically blow their nit drinks out their nose because he asked them, so are you going to bring click once to Windows Store app deployment? <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, no. That's a moo question. Well, yeah. well, we have, yeah, but to their point, what they haven't seen is how do I run my own store in my company? Right. right? Exactly. Like, that's what you actually want is you want an app store for your company and you could sort of do it with configuration manager and a few other pieces, like it's not easy to do right now. Uh, it's certainly not dev centric. You you have to build your app. You have to send it over to ops. Ops has to build it into a part of an image. Like there's a bunch of stuff that has to happen for it to be readily available in a large enterprise. Exactly, and I mean nobody really wanted click once. They just wanted a light touch deployment mechanism yeah. that did auto updating. Yeah, and, give me uh, yeah, give me. Give me a way to deploy apps that doesn't make me want to kill myself. That's all I'm asking. Well, and their point is, you know, if you can afford to put your app in the store, 
you have that today because the store does that for you. Right. But, you know, it's more for the enterprise scenarios and, and Intune kind of does that if you can do Intune. Mm. So, you know, there already are, are already answers for the Windows 8 environment to a large degree. Uh, Brian and Richard, stand by one second while we pay the bills. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by NDC. And uh, we're going to be there in Oslo, June 2 to 6. And you can read more about that at ndcoslo.com. You mentioned Intune, Brian. Um, Is that something that is more or less necessary now than now that we have uh, a a semi-decent story with Windows 8? And what is the story with Windows 8 that they announced at Build, by the way? Yeah, so, uh, well, Intune just kind of gives you a more managed... um, a managed platform for kind of push type deployment of your Windows 8 apps in an enterprise environment um, and more centralized, I guess, is a better way to, to put it. Centralized management of deploying your Windows 8 apps in an enterprise environment. So Intune is the, the way to deploy in an enterprise environment your Windows 8 apps. Right. A lot of people have asked for sort of self-managed stores, and that's not exactly what the experience of using Intune is. Um and, and they haven't really said anything more about doing that uh, recently. So you still have the option of walking up to, you know, any given machine, running some PowerShell scripts and, and getting it put on the machine that way if you have the product keys. And that was one of the announcements at Build was that they kind of made the product key uh, requirements much less painful. Uh, All right. So at least we get we get something, which is better than nothing. Yeah, and and like I say, part of the announcements there at Build is, you know, the big barrier for letting Windows 8 become a replacement for WPF in terms of enterprise apps. You know, one of the big barriers was the whole product key story that Rocky Latka, you know, has talked about on the show and on his blog posts. So basically, you know, one of the big announcements from that perspective is pretty much removing that barrier. There's, you know, nuances to it and technical details, but the short story is, Product keys are no no longer costly nor a barrier uh, for deploying your your Windows 8 apps. Right. So that takes away one of the you know kind of things that would keep WPF in the mix for a much longer time. Yeah. Um, another one that they announced is something they call brokered components, which lets you take basically .NET class libraries that could be doing things like could be just doing business logic, but it could be doing things like ADO.NET or any framework or WCF service calls. Um, and doing things you wouldn't normally be able to do in a WinRT application. And even if you could do it in a WinRT application, the code would look different. You can basically just take those old class libraries, put a thin little wrapper around them, and now you can call them, reference them and call them directly from your WinRT app. Hmm. So that's a pretty huge, you know, kind of stepping stone for being able to progressively move from WPF or even Windows Forms with a bunch of legacy code as long as it's well factored. And that's probably the biggest barrier for a lot of customers is, you know, if it's a thousand lines of code in a button click handler, that's mm. not well factored. You're not going to be able to call that. But if it's, you know, a couple lines of code in a button click handler, the calls to a business layer class library that has a data layer class library underneath that as a traditional set of layers, then you can just wrap those those class libraries now, pull them into your WinRT app, and you know just put a new face on your application, basically, and turn it into a Windows 8 app if you're willing to adopt that new look and feel and modern, modern UI style. It, it's basically enforcing an architecture on you, and, and ultimately, I guess, it's an architecture for good. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, for the long term, if, if it was me, would I want to live with those legacy layers for too long? Probably not. But, you know, as a, as a much better migration path of saying you have to rewrite it all to be able to say all you have to rewrite is the UI, you know, yeah. that's that's a pretty big deal. But that it, it does mean you're already organized into services so that you will actually run in that secured mode. I mean, we don't talk about it much any, a, anymore, but that metro mode is far more secure for your system. That's Absolutely. The whole, that was one of the biggest impulses for making the store in the first place was, you know, right. all the security issues that were around desktop apps. But uh, is there is that sandbox as imposing as it was when, uh, you know, when, when Windows 8 first came out? I mean, there were a lot of limitations and things that you couldn't do, and it's matured a lot since then. What are the, the biggest drawbacks on the list of things that you can't do in a Windows 8 app now? Well, from a from a business apps perspective, the the things I run into all the time, and and these really haven't changed at all. You know, to to my mind, the things that have changed a lot from Windows eight to eight point one release, and now with the eight point one update, is you know making it easier to get done what you need to do within the sandbox. So being able to you know build better structures in your sandbox, if you will, mm. um, but you still haven't been able to break out of the sandbox in in any significant way. So the things that are you know certainly barriers for business applications is running things in the background when your when your app is off screen with Windows 8, you know it goes completely dormant. It has no threads of execution. Mm-hmm. so it can't get anything done. But there's background APIs you can set up, but even those only run on a periodic basis with a pretty long time interval. And there's limitations to what those can do even when they are running. So, you know, the the concept of putting my app in the system tray, for example, just doesn't really exist um, with a Windows 8 app. And there's an awful lot of, you know, kind of those background threads churning and doing work in business apps. Mm. Another one is accessing local services. And this is one of the things that these new brokered apps allow you to do is that um, before you couldn't access any services on localhost other than when you're debugging. Right. Now, with a brokered application, you can put the right permissions into your into your package manifest, say, yes, I'm allowed to do that. Obviously, that's breaking down the walls of that sandbox, and and by doing so, they put a restriction that you can only do this brokered app thing if you sideload. So it's specifically targeting, you know, those things that were painful for businesses, where letting them kind of break through the side of the sandbox for the things they need to do, but with the acknowledgement that we will only do those things if we're going to sideload it. It won't pass store certification. Brian, does this remind you of anything? Code access security. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remember that? Hell yeah! Wasn't wasn't .NET supposed to be a little sandbox? You know, <laughs> remember that? Yeah, oh, yeah, but well, with good reason too, right? There was always this problem of the software manipulating your system in a way you didn't expect. So, do we have that same problem with WPF and Windows Forms apps that we have with good old fashioned Win thirty two apps written in C Sure. Yeah. There's no. No reason you can't shell out to to the command window and format the drive. Yeah, right. So, so what I'm saying is, you know, code access security didn't work. No, I mean, once you give programmers access to a way to to get around the system, you. But but that's the point. That's actually the whole point is that you know what Microsoft has been beat up severely about since they released the Windows 8 stuff is businesses coming to them and saying. 
this is my system, my software running in my environment with my users. I am willing to take that responsibility. Don't prevent me from doing the things I need to do for my business. Mm. That's a totally different perspective than the consumer perspective. And that's why the restrictions of the store exist and why that that particular sandbox for Windows 8 applications yeah, that, exists. That makes perfect sense. But I do sense. appreciate that they've done it in a way where it's it's part of the configuration file. It's very declarative. You yes. know the penetrations that you're allowing with that app. Like you could pop up a dialog during install and say, here are the ports it's going that it's requesting to be able to operate. This is what it's going to be allowed to do. Right. Like, what I like, I mean, now turn us, put us back on the IT pr- approach. Right, where a guy's bringing an app in that he wants to use, we see all kinds of potential business value for it. But your infosec guy just says, "I need to know what it's trying to do." This manifest approach to the software, right, where I have a manifest of what it's going to do, is basically a summary of what the infosec guy needs to look at. Exactly. These are the calls that it's going to make, as opposed to what Metro did initially, which says there's just not going to be any. Yeah, except I mean, you know, just so people realize, it's not. It's not that fine grain. So, you know, it's pretty much uh, the the kinds of uh, relaxation of restrictions that they're allowing is things like, like I said, local host service access. Right. What that service does, you know, there's no idea there. No, so, you just know that he's allowed to call to it yeah, where before it wasn't allowed. So, I mean, if I'm an InfoSec guy and I know you can call the service, or this local host service, now I can go look at it and see what the heck it is. Exactly. And open ports, you know, and full That's file right. system access. So it's pretty broad statements, but you're right that at least there's a declarative aspect there that yeah. says this app is now allowed to do these things and it wouldn't be normally as a Windows 8 app. And it's not even, it's not even do these things. It's talk to this stuff. Right. What that stuff does, you have to go figure out yourself, but at least you know who he's talking to. Yeah. It's no different than tracking your teenager. Right. <laughs> you know, you don't know if you're actually smoking pot with him, but at least you know his name. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Richard, you know what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to track down your teenager and take away his marijuana. Well, that's because you read his uh, manifest. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to review the manifest of your, <laughs> of your teenager and make sure he's not going to the pot smoking service. That's called waiting until the last second to make up a joke right there. That's <laughs> what that is. Reaching. We're fighting with it. You're seeing the brainstorming process. This is the sausage being made. <laughs> no, no, no. It's actually time to give away a D-Express subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, let's talk about the DevExpress Universal subscription. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner, Michael Burgess. Congratulations, Michael. Yeah. Golf clap for you. I got the clapper. Nice. You got the clapper. I got the clappers. Sounds like a disease. That's it. Well, you, you can know, get a cream for that. It actually know. is a disease. You know, <laughs> you have these things laying around. They look like two hands with a hand in the middle, and you smack them together, and they clap. Yeah, it's a lot it, of fun. It, it's not normal. Nope. 
Anyway, uh, so if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we give away great sponsor stuff like the D Experience subscription from DevExpress. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, which we pick at random. But you have to be signed up to win any of these things. Uh, Brian Noyes, I don't know as if we've asked you this question. Have we asked you this question before? I haven't. I've pretty much choked on it every time. And I should have been prepared this time, and I didn't. Well, what do you think? Five grand, let's go shopping. What would you buy? Ah, uh, I would probably buy a whole slew of devices. I'm kind of a device junkie, and I'm always yearning for the the other form factors and and stuff to just play with and see how they're different and test them out. You so, know, the one pr- of everything. You know what the problem with having a lot of devices is? Can't use them all at once. Yeah, and a place to put them all. Place to charge them all. Yeah, and charge yes. them. You need a room for the. You need a device room with table space. That's <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Everywhere I look in my house right now, there's a tablet lying there somewhere. You know, every kind of species you can think of. Right. There's charging cables everywhere, and they're all different. And heaven know. forbid if you lose a, a wall wart, you know, if they disassociate themselves from each other, you got to label them, of course. I have a, you know, in the studio, I have, before I learned this lesson, I had, I have, of course, misplaced things. And I have a whole plastic bin that's probably three feet by two feet by one foot filled with AC adapters that are just completely, you know, abandoned. And yeah, no idea what they plug into. I have no idea. (laughs) I love it. I should raffle it off on, on, uh, you know, on Facebook or on uh, Craigslist or something. And, of course, each one has its own proprietary charging plug. Of course. Yep. A little different voltage and a little different amperage and a little and, and one of two polarities because, let's face it, there's only two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the point of all that, guys? Yeah. Micro USB all the way. Can't we just do USB for everything? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right. One of every device. One so, of every device. iPad. I got one of those. So I, I need the more exotic form factor. Some of those flippy, twisty kind of uh, tablet <laughs> hybrid laptops. <laughs> Have you played with the Lenovo Yoga? Uh, I, I just at conferences when other people have It's them, yeah. both flippy and twisty, isn't it's it? It's flippy twisty. Yeah. It's a good description <laughs> of it. Yep. So a couple flippy of those, twisty. you know, uh, I, I'm still a, a holdout on iPhone at this point, but yearning for a Windows phone. So maybe, you know, a, a, a a couple of different uh, Nokia's there with the phablets and the small phone, and then probably need an eight-inch device of some sort. And, I saw know. a new Nokia phone. Uh, it's Verizon only, though. I can't remember the name of it. Icon. Yeah, the Icon. It takes great video stabilization and great audio for some. I, I guess if you're one of these people who likes to go see a band and take video, it's perfect for that, right? Right. That's yeah, pretty much the same as the. Uh, they announced a new one at Build, and I'm trying to remember the numbers. The 930. 930, that's it. But the 930 is not coming to the North Americas for another year. And I think it's probably because the Icon has exclusivity for a year. So right. I think what I'll do, and I'm, a, I'm an AT&T customer, but I like the idea of the video. So I'll just go get an Icon without a plan. Yeah. <laughs> just a Wi-Fi device. Yeah, that's my life with all these phones floating around. It's just a lot of Wi-Fi. Yeah. 
Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I like I it. Just, I, I just like the look of $5,000 worth of gadgets, right? All the phones, <laughs> all the flippy twisties. Like, this, the, it is a table worth of stuff. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Should be fun. So I think we're halfway through this show, and we have not said the word prism yet. Well, we were kind of waiting, weren't we? Because it's... <laughs> well, I think there was... You it know, needs its I'm, own half hour, really. The install problem is an important problem. And, then, you know, what technologies can we use? That's all, I don't think we... We're slow. It's just there's a bunch of stuff you need to know before Prism even makes sense. So there's a new version coming. So yep. let, let's talk about that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, part of it is this idea that WPF still has some legs to it. And, you know, we've talked about Prism on the show before several times, various versions of it, because I've been involved uh, since the beginning. So people can certainly check out those older shows for the, you know, the deeper background in Prism and all the features and stuff. But, Part of this is just an acknowledgement that Prism's been out there for a while. The last, uh, you know, full release of Prism for not Windows Store apps. We did a separate version for Windows Store apps. And I should probably explain the we part there for, for people who haven't heard the other shows. Is I have been uh, working as a vendor when whenever they've been working on a new version of Prism since the first version of Prism. I've been going back and, and working as a vendor with Microsoft and been involved with the releases. Um, so I sort of schizophrenically sometimes say we, and sometimes say they, <laughs> Okay. but, uh, basically I say they for anything I, you know, didn't like, or don't want to take credit for. <laughs> um, but so, you know, the prism team has been, uh, you know, the last official release for non-store apps was 4.1, which came out in 2010. Um, and you know, a lot's happened between now and then, um, we did a separate release for called prism for windows runtime for store apps. And that started out as somewhat of an evolution of prism 4.1, but targeting windows store apps. But obviously the, as we've been talking about, WinRT is a lot different in terms of what you can do and how you structure the app and so on. So we kind of, you know, evolved some things in prism for windows runtime that we, you know, after that, the idea was some of that makes sense for the, the WPF world. And another difference is Prism 4.1 targeted WPF and Silverlight and actually had a very heavy emphasis on Silverlight because it was the shiny poster child at the time. Mm. In fact, most of the quick starts and stuff were only in Silverlight. And people doing that, you know, that dead thing, WPF, had to go back and kind of port the quick starts over, try to infer what they needed to do in WPF land. Right. So the Prism team, you know, took a look at that and said, okay, we, you know, really ought to update this because there's an awful lot of customers out there. There's some, you know, very big customers that use Prism. And they figured they should get a new release out there. So they're coming out with what's going to be called Prism 5. Um, and the the choice of version number there for a while, they were calling it 4.2. In fact, if you go out to prism.coplex.com right now, you'll see a, a link there on the homepage that talks about a, a first drop of Prism 4.2. But by the time this airs, probably will be right about at release time. Uh, so it's due to release in, in the latter half of April as Prism 5. And um, in terms of new features, there's not a ton there. Uh, like I said, they basically ported over some, um, some of the features that we added or, or evolved in the Prism for Windows runtime stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then they also kind of refactored things, basically cast off all the Silverlight and Windows Phone routes uh, because the Windows Phone support they had there was for, you know, specifically for, I think, 7.1. Um, 
So there, it's basically going to be a release just for WPF, uh, just targeting WPF and .NET 4.5. And it carries on all the functionality that was there before. So it's generally non-breaking in terms of functionality for people who are using Prism 4.1. Uh, but they did do some kind of refactoring because one of the things we did in, in the Prism for Windows Runtime stuff was take some common functionality between the Windows Runtime version and the um, the functionality that was there for the desktop version, put it in portable class libraries. Yeah. And we did more of that, or they did more of that. So the part of the we they is, you know, there's things I had direct involvement in. Sure. For this release, I was more just an advisor. Um, so I didn't do any of the actual work myself. That makes um, sense. So, you know, uh, part of this effort was to refactor and put as much into PCL's portable class libraries as they could to share that code between both the Windows Store version and the uh and the WPF version with the expectation that there will be another release of the, the Windows Store one in the future. And certainly with the stuff they uh, they talked about at Build with universal apps, you know, there's a good target there for why they would want to get a new version out that could target both Windows Phone 8.1 and Windows 8.1. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be the new modern way is focusing everything on PCL. Exactly. And then, and then you almost have your choice of UI approaches, whatever you want to do. Well, exactly. And then there's also the benefit that, you know, if it's in a PCL, it's a candidate to be used with Xamarin on other platforms. Right. So Yeah, and again, your UI is going to change, but that underlying code will work, and PCL runs, almost actually runs everywhere. Exactly. In fact, I think it was the the last show we recorded, at the time, the Prism for Windows runtime was being called Kona. It was uh, Project Kona initially. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think we had a, I forget whether it was like a call-in question or something from, uh, what's the gentleman's name who does MVVM Cross you've had on the Stuart show? Stuart Lodge. Uh, yes, Stuart. So, you know, Stuart was basically asking about, uh, a- after the fact, he was asking, you know, can that stuff be used with MVVM Cross? And I had to do some checking at the time, and the answer was basically no, because they didn't put enough functionality in PCLs. Um, and, and the fact is, a lot of it really was focused on Windows 8 specific features like the suspend, resume, lifecycle, and stuff like that that mm. wouldn't be cross-platform anyway. Mm-hmm. So basically, this new version, Prism 5, they're going to break things up into a couple of PCLs, one that's focused on MVVM, um, because some of the stuff we carried over from the Prism for Windows runtime is that Prism 4.1 wasn't really an MVVM framework. It had some MVVM-related features in there, um, but it wasn't, you know, a first and foremost feature of the code uh, that you got out of Prism. In Prism for Windows Runtime, we focused a lot more on MVVM and put more infrastructure there, um, including, uh, for example, a common pattern with MVVM is a, a view model locator. So we put some infrastructure there for doing view model locators. Um, and stuff like that in the Prism for Windows runtime. And we wanted to bring that back over to the WPF side so that the uh, WPF Prism was more of an MVVM framework. And so that's part of where the new functionality in uh, in Prism 5 is going to reside. But we put all of that into a PCL because there's nothing platform-specific about it. Nice. Um, some other things that are in there is just uh, basically kind of deprecating a few things that you know, basically, we didn't want to remove them and break code for people that just want to add references to the new libraries and move forward. Um, but the way we did, for example, the uh, iNotify property change pattern to support MVVM and data binding in general. Oh, good. We had, 
we had a base class called notification object that did that. We changed it over to, if you've been exposed to bindable base was something that was introduced with Windows 8 apps and yep. Visual Studio. Yep. Basically, we you know mimic the patterns of bindable base, call it the same thing, just a different namespace, um, and have that now for Windows Store apps and for your WPF apps. And That's that awesome. leverages things that have come in in the meantime, like the caller member caller member name attribute that you can put on parameters to basically say, you know, pass the property name is the way it's used with with this pattern, uh, pass the property name implicitly, so I don't have to so have hard coded strings and things. Yeah, so you can just say notify property changed instead of having to pass the property and do all that stuff. You just exactly, make one call exactly. and wherever you're calling it from. That's it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Um, another just, you know, little one-off feature they put in there is that um, in Prism 4, we added some functionality for navigation, being able to switch views within a, a container with a, a URL-like syntax so that the the logic code that's causing the navigation to happen doesn't have to be coupled to what view is being presented. Mm -hmm. And one of the requests that's been there for a long time with that is we supported passing parameters, but they had to be basically query string parameters um, in a URL type syntax. And and people were like, "Yeah, that's great for the web, but this is a you know a smart client in memory, uh, objects in memory kind of thing. Can't I just pass an object reference as a navigation parameter?" So that was one of the things that got added here in Prism Five. Okay. And then the only other um, kind of new functionality in a way that I can think of is that there was another thing put in there in Prism 4 called interaction request, which was basically setting up a, a pattern for when you need to do UI notifications to the user, whether it's you know basically pop-up dialogue type scenarios. Um, that's, again, something that usually the logic that drives that is going to be back in a view model, but view models shouldn't present UI. So it was always this conundrum that you start doing MVVM and the easiest thing in the world, popping a message box, becomes the hardest thing in the world because trying to figure out what's the right way to do that, to have the right responsibilities in the view and the right responsibilities in the view model just adds a lot of complexity. So we came up with this pattern called an interaction request in uh, Prism 4, but the only you know, the, the code to support it was only for Silverlight. Uh, for the most part, all the samples were in Silverlight. So that's one of the other things they kind of finally ported over to WPF. So you can do the interaction request stuff with WPF. It's good. Yeah. And it, and it does show the models coming forward, right? That we're actually bringing these two pieces together. Yeah, exactly. It, it, like I said, it's not, you know, any groundbreaking new functionality, but it's, I, I think it's almost more important just to show that there's this, you know, ongoing commitment by Microsoft, including patterns and practices to say, you know, just because it's mature doesn't mean it's old or dead. Right. You know? So it's mature, but there's still, you know, fine grained kind of uh, improvements you can make. And, and just the fact that they are putting those resources into it gives a very clear signal that it is certainly a perfectly viable choice. But it does sound like 4.2 is probably going to be the last version that's oriented on WPF and 5 is kind of going to go forward on that. Well, 4.1 was the 2010 version. Right. Uh, the the 4.2 was what they were initially calling it here, so there there won't be a 4.2. Okay. I mean, still, it's on Codeplex right now. Yeah. 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 If you yeah for for .NET 4.51. 
Yeah, so as we're recording this on Coplex, it's called 4.2. When it releases in a few weeks in, in late April, it's going to be called uh, Prism 5. 5, okay. Yeah. But, but it does seem like that's a breaking shift and it's going to be different going forward. Yeah, so the reason they decided to change the version number there is because initially they were doing it um, with very little change to the structure of the libraries. Right. Um, once, you know, started going down this path of putting the MVVM stuff in its own PCL, uh, they refactored some of the other stuff that was just one big old library with Prism before, and they broke it up into a couple of other libraries that will be separate NuGets. You know, so it's kind of the evolving world of you just pull in the packages you need from NuGet. So they went with, you know, the more fine-grained composition model there that if you just want this or that from Prism, you can get it as a separate NuGet. And that's why they went with the separate, you know, the major version change, because it will be breaking in a way to existing users of Prism only in that they got to update all their references. So they need to basically need to recompile. Yeah, exactly. To, uh, update their references and recompile, everything will just work. But, you know, the, as I mentioned, there's two things, the notification objects and the um, what used to be called composite presentation events, the PubSub events. We, we created a portable class library version of that in Prism for Windows Runtime, and Prism 5 will just use the newer version, the PCL version, and so the uh, composite presentation event becomes deprecated. So they're still there. You'll still compile fine, but you will get warnings about deprecation now, Right. and that means the, the door is open for them to remove that in the subsequent version. How do you feel about using a view model locator, or your customers for that matter? That's a good question because that seems to be a hot topic with people. Um, I personally like it, so I was an advocate for the the view model locator. For those not familiar, a view model locator is basically the idea is to be be able to put something declarative into the XAML of your view that basically just says, "Go find me my view model," yeah, and doesn't have to couple the view to the view model or vice versa. And so the one we put in uh, Prism five or the one they are putting in Prism 5 <laughs> is the one we created in Prism for Windows Runtime. Um, and it's basically got default wire-up logic that assumes a convention. So it's a convention over configuration-based approach that says, if I put all my views in a view subfolder of my project, then my view models will be in a view model subfolder. And so it'll just you know look for a, a namespace change there, tack uh, view models on the end instead of views, and that's where it will find, and it expects if your view is customer view, then your view model will be customer view model. If you don't like those conventions, it's all simple and easy to override, and it gives uh, handy hook points for wiring in a dependency injection container to be able to do the construction dependency injection into your view models, so it makes it so you can still be declarative in the XAML. Like when you say dot data context equals an instance of my view model, but still be able to do dependency injection and things like that. So I guess the people that don't like it are the control freaks that just want to be very explicit about everything. You know, it's interesting because there are uh, there are people I respect highly uh, that I have worked with before on the Prism project, and I won't name names, but there are people out there that just were like, don't put view model locator in there. It's an anti-pattern. Oh, my God. And we're just sort of freaking out that we were doing that. 
Um, it, but there were never any really clearly articulated reasons for why that was a bad thing. To me, it's a preference. You know, it's a lifestyle thing. You don't <laughs> like that? It, it's like you get in these, you get MBBM guys at conferences can burn amazing amounts of hours talking about things like it should be view first. No, it should be view model first. You know, I, I think and, it, that's really just culture, isn't it? I mean, it comes down to everybody accepting a convention. That's yep. really what you're talking about here. And, exactly. As and, long as you're you know, consistent uh, on your own team, that's what matters. That's really what matters. So, yeah. so you know, his convention, the, the naysayers convention, is to to look at where the view model is specified. And, ah, I can follow that. I understand that because mm-hmm. it's explicitly defined. And I don't have to worry about what's your convention, what's this convention, what's that convention. Right. Yeah. So well, I understand yeah, the, that. And the proof's in delivering software successfully. You know, when I see guys fighting over that, there's a reason that I call it a purse fight. Right? <laughs> like you just, you're taking a small bag and whapping each other in the face with it. It's kind of embarrassing. Oh, just stop. Just stop. Right? Write some it. code. Show us good software. Yeah. Just yep. figure out what the conventions are on the team and go with it. Yeah. Exactly. Too funny. All right. So it's in there. You don't have to use it as the bottom line. So, you know, whatever way you hook your views and view models together today, you can keep doing that. But if you, you know, like a declarative approach in the XAML, you've now got a nice way to do that as well. So uh, breaking changes, anything cracked? No, the like I said, the only there there were people on the advisors team that were kind of freaking out about the idea of having to change, you know, from one reference to multiple references. But that's it. So. That's it. Yeah. Uh, that you know, there there is nothing removed or changed in a way that compiling code will stop to compile and run. It'll all just run. Like I said, the only thing would be that you're going to get warnings about deprecation on certain classes. So, universal apps. Uh, this is the new thing between you know a, a Windows um, RT app or, or a Metro app or whatever you want to call it, and a and a and a phone app, but a Windows 8 app and a phone app, but does that have any effect at all on a WPF, the WPF scenario? No. So uh, people get confused between universal and brokered apps. As I talked about before, brokered apps definitely do provide a, a migration path there that you could take your logic, data access, service code, service calling code, let's say, um, that exists in a WPF app and move it forward to a, a Windows Store app. Just to sideload the- it, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of directly impacting WPF development, I don't really see an overlap there. But in terms of Prism that we've been talking about, you know, I don't know for certain, but I would suspect that the next logical step for the patterns and practices Prism team, at least I would hope as a consumer of Prism, is that uh, that they would do a new version of the Prism for Windows runtime targeting universal apps so that basically you'd get Prism for Windows runtime for the phone, which doesn't exist right now for Win- uh, Windows Phone 8. Okay. And where does where does stuff on the service side um, fit into the world of WPF development? Any any changes that we need to be aware of? You know, like Azure Mobile Services, Web API, SignalR? Yeah, all of these things, really. You know, this is where being in .NET in, and have a full .NET client really helps you out there, is that Anything that's being done, like, you know, mobile services, SignalR, all those things, you can consume those from 
WPF very easily, even though there haven't been any major changes to the WPF recently. Like I said, there is a team working on certain things for future versions, but I don't expect those to be groundbreaking either. They're yeah. going to be more, you know, evolution than revolution. But what continues to change the world of WPF development is all the stuff on the back end, all the different forms of backends that you can easily consume from your WPF app. So whereas most traditional, you know, enterprise WPF apps that I've worked with and that most people have built have just said, okay, WCF is the way we do services. Yep. WCF's really fading these days. And sure so is. doing things over mobile services, ASP.NET Web API, getting callbacks with SignalR, all that stuff is a much lighter weight, easier way to go these days. I mean, easy. You said the word right there. I mean, WCF totally. is the configuration nightmare, really. And can be, definitely. It can be, yeah. You can get it in over your head. And, uh, well, that, anything else that you want to cover before we hang up? No, no, I think that's, uh, that kind of summarizes the state of the union of WPF in prison. <laughs> awesome, Brian. Hey, thanks for coming back, and it's always good to talk to you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a